0: Hey, welcome back to Magellan's at the Movies. I'm here at Magellan's at the Movies HQ in the middle of nowhere. Joining me uh, is Nathan at, at our satellite office in Ames, a town that can't seem to decide if it's big or not. I've been to Ames several times now, and it feels like it's kind of big, but also kind of small. It's strange. You'd have to visit it to understand. It's a nice middle ground. I really like, I love Ames. Let me just plug Ames
1: real fast. <laughs> I love Ames. I think it's, it's got some of them big city amenities, but kind of with a small town feel. I really like it.
0: There you go. Uh, look out for our forthcoming spin-off podcast. Magellan's at the municipal <laughs> municipality. <laughs> <laughs> Municipalities. Go um, on. But while we work on that, and while everyone gets excited for that, we still have uh, a few rounds to go in the Rotten Tomatoes Best Directors of the Last 25 Years. We discussed in the interim period, between our last episode and now, that Matt Reeves actually is not qualified for the Best Director of the Last 25 Years list, because he had a movie in, like, 96 that uh, nobody likes and nobody cares about. But... That doesn't matter. That's just something interesting to know. Let me go ahead and grab the round five. So this is going to be pretty quick. Denis Villeneuve versus Damien Chazelle. Don't think we need to go over these two directors any more than we've already. We already have. This is pretty easy. I'm going to go with Denis. Damien Chazelle has made a movie that I love, a movie that I enjoy, a movie that I dislike. As I've often said, he's very much fallen victim to the curve. His movies have been on a downward trend ever since Whiplash. Uh, Nathan doesn't believe in that, but that's because Nathan, he's a bit delusional. So yeah, <laughs> Denis is one of my favorite directors. He's made a bunch of masterpieces, and I'll happily take him over Damien. Um, th- this is a lot harder
1: for me, but I think... I think I'm going to have to go Damien and kind of for a similar reason that I picked, gosh, I think it was Sam Mendes a couple weeks ago, just because I think Damien has done a lot more outside of the same realm, whereas almost everything besides, like, I guess, prisoners and... Well, a lot of Denis' recent stuff is just sci-fi. It's very good sci-fi, but he has kind of struggled not struggled because he hasn't really done it, but you know, he's just kind of picked a lane and it seems like he's planning on sticking to this lane for at least his next two movies, which I believe are both science fiction things. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going Damien Chazelle. I love Damien Chazelle. His four, his last four movies are all phenomenal. His first movie is not that good, but whatever he made it. He was like a student. So who cares?
0: Uh, yeah, well, that's complete nonsense. Thankfully, the voters have soundly rejected such nonsense because Denis took this one very safely with 78% of the vote. That's terrible. Sorry, Nathan. Next up, we have Jordan Peele versus Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan wins. Yeah, this is, I mean, I think we
1: already talked about last week that it's kind of embarrassing that Jordan Peele even got this far. Just because... I don't feel like he has enough of a filmography to justify having this conversation. And I think this is the perfect, I mean, Nolan is out here. You could take the like middle three Nolan movies and they're probably going to be all three of the Jordan Peele movies. not all three, but you know, are going to end up coming out better than Peele's for me. So yeah, Nolan by
0: a lot. And Nolan won by a lot. He won by 87% of the vote, which, to be fair, that's the first time he's ever won under 90%, so his lead is being chipped away. He's he's being felled. The Titan is being brought low by an extra 3% of the vote. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm not a Peel hater or anything. I mean, I don't love him as much as a lot of people do, and we've talked about our problems with him as the director and as a storyteller. But yeah, I, I would never have picked him for being better than what, how many, like 63 other directors <laughs> or 60. Yeah. that's Yeah. There are, there, there are, there are many more. There are a lot of directors who I would take before I would take Jordan Peel, if only because they have more movies. So there's, greater likelihood that there's something truly special in there. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nothing actually matters. Actually, life is completely pointless. Um, I didn't know if, I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, So let's, let's move on to something else that doesn't matter. And that's today's movie, uh, today's subject. Nathan, This was your pick, so why don't you take it away? Tell us about this Citizen Kane movie that we hear so much about. Yeah, so I guess unless you've been living under a
1: rock or if you're just not very keyed into kind of film, the film universe, Citizen Kane is Orson Welles's first film that he released in 19. (laughs) Do you have an issue,
0: Elliot? Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry I just took a drink Elliot's of, over there I just took a drink of my my soda can and realized that it's been sitting there for a while cuz I could taste the layer of dust that had settled on top of the fluid ew that's so
1: gross okay i thought elliot was drinking like hard liquor cuz he he drank something that just made a really tough face like he was gritting through <laughs> um anyway Citizen Kane, 1941 film. It is commonly cited as one of the greatest movies of all time. It was number one on the Sight and Sound top 250 movies list for a really, basically from the inception of the list until like the 2012 when Vertigo finally took over. It And Sight and Sound is a very prestigious poll of a huge number of critics and Film directors and people in the movie industry. We're on it. But this what? Yeah, we're on it. Yeah, for sure. Can't can't wait for twenty thirty-two when we get to submit our ballots. Yep. So this movie follows Citizen Kane, the titular Citizen Kane, Charles Foster Kane. And it opens with his death. And then follows a reporter who's trying to figure out the meaning of his final words. With his dying breath, he said the word Rosebud. And the journalist is going and talking to his ex-wife, his ex-business partners, friends, people who knew him, to try and figure out what Rosebud is, who Rosebud is, and what it meant for Charles Foster Kane. Yeah, so this is a, a classic. It's if you watch it, you will be amazed at how many times you have seen stuff from this movie in other media. It's parodied constantly in almost everything, especially the opening scene of Charles Foster Kane dying is constantly parodied in pop culture. But now now we're gonna share our thoughts on this on this touchstone of cinema. So, Elliot, why don't we start with you? Share, you know, some opening thoughts on Citizen Kane here.
0: Yeah. Citizen Kane. Here we go. So we, I don't know about you, Nathan, but this is the second time that I've watched this film ever. The first time we watched it together was way too late at night. So I was (laughs) not at the energy level to take on what is, a fairly dense movie that clocks in at a, a pretty hefty two hours. So I didn't really—I I never really thought about Citizen Kane in the uh, in the years since then because I was like, I felt like I hadn't actually seen it, or you know mm. what I mean. And now I—I I, I mean, I finished watching it like thirty minutes ago, um, and I gotta say. I think it's really good. I think it's really strong, really like Charles Foster Kane. I I love a good character study. Um, I like the framing device of the reporter asking different people for insights into such a consequential life because in this timeline, Charles Foster Kane is like, he's hugely consequential. He had political aspirations. He's most well known for being a newspaper tycoon so he had a country spanning media empire uh that eventually fell down crashed down around his ears and yeah i i don't think that i was as like i don't think i was as like immediately enthralled as i was when excuse me we watched uh Casablanca and I don't really know what it is I think maybe just like the the writing or the dialogue isn't as snappy or what but I think that there is something just like I don't know it's hard to explain but I I just wasn't as like completely on board with it as I was with Casablanca there was just something missing. Kind of like a rosebud sort of feeling. <laughs>
1: yeah. So um, I think one other, it's not super important piece of kind of cultural context for this movie, is this movie is a very thinly veiled version of a very, very famous person at the time named William Randolph Hearst. There's more than a few things in Citizen Kane that are clearly allusions to Hearst and who Hearst was as a person. He was a huge newspaper tycoon who did have political aspirations. Um, That's not super important, but it's just kind of an interesting thing to know going in that this is a movie that People watching it in the 40s would have been able to know it was talking about someone, whatever. In terms of my feelings towards the movie, uh, like you said, we watched it a long time ago and I had not watched it since, but I had thought about this movie a lot. I think I was maybe more awake when we watched it than you were because I just kept thinking about what made this movie good. And I kept reading reviews of the movie. And the reason why I chose to do this movie is I just finished reading a book of interviews with Orson Welles. And I just thought it was the conversations they had about the film were so interesting and I found it really engaging. So I was like, man, I should rewatch the movie and see if it's that good in real life. And I'm happy to report it absolutely is. I'm glad that you liked it. I was afraid we were going to have another one of these contentious fighty episodes that we sometimes have. But no, I I enjoyed this so much. I enjoyed it for so many reasons. I think it is 100% deserving of its kind of place in the film canon. And I think a lot of people watch it and don't, I don't want to say they don't understand what it's trying to do, but they're not like willing to invest the effort to figure out what it's trying to do. It, a lot of times I hear from people that it's it's boring and I don't think it's not boring at all, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> but we I That's guess right, you, know. Nathan. You, you tell the unwashed masses what they should be thinking. I'm not
1: saying what they should be thinking. I'm just suggesting that a possible reason why they're disliking it is they're not like seriously engaging with the material of the film. <laughs> that sounds so much better. <laughs> I'm whatever, okay? All right. Whatever. Let's 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 dive into the actual film. Let's talk about the movie. Elliot, what do you what do you want to start with? I've got a lot of stuff in my notes over here, so I could start almost anywhere. So how about you, you know, you pick a place.
0: Well, I want to start with the cinematography because if there's one thing, well, probably not. (laughs) If there's like 15 things you should know about citizen Kane, number 12 is that a lot of it's cinematography, like techniques and shots were groundbreaking. Like this movie is shot in a way that movies hadn't really been shot up until that point. Um so like the camera panning over the nightclub and then through the window uh or quote unquote through the window that 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 that's something that you don't didn't really see um before Citizen Kane. And yeah, there are just so many shots that are just really cool. I feel like this movie has a really good visual style and really good visual storytelling it's often very um it's often very pulled back from citizen kane and i i don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that that is supposed to be communicating the distance that he feels from most people um and probably one of the most famous shots in the history of long form movies is the low angle shot of citizen kane of Citizen Kane, of Kane at the podium in front of the giant poster of his face. And that is a really cool shot. I, I I, was honestly tempted to just pause the movie right there and drink it in because it just looks so cool. And it's such a good like visual representation of what the movie is trying to portray about Citizen Kane that I keep on calling him Citizen Kane, <laughs> about Charles Foster Kane, that he's this larger-than-life figure and because he's so, because he looms so large in everybody's mind, he doesn't really feel close to anyone. Mm-hmm. That he is too far away from them. He's too, people have, it's, it's a lot like what we talked about with Lawrence of Arabia, that there's too much myth surrounding him for people to know like the real Charles Foster Kane. And as we'll get into later on in the movie or, or in the review, or as I'll get into, I don't know how you feel about this, Nathan, but a lot of that is, of course, Kane's own fault. Um, That he is consciously making a, or fueling a myth-making machine that is contributing to his sense of isolation. But yeah, I thought that there were so many cool shots and pans, and just the visual language of this movie, I think, is spot on.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things that made this movie like such a huge splash when it came out. You're absolutely right. There was nothing that looked like this when this movie came out. And a part of it was because Orson Welles came from the theater. So he didn't shoot the movie like a movie person. He shot it like he thought movies should look. And he had no idea how movies should look in the interview book he talked about a discussion that he had with his cinematographer, like halfway through filming citizen Kane, where he's like, Hey, I want to do this. And the cinematographer was like, Hey, just so you know, none of what you're doing is what other people do. Like, and it's, it's not stuff that we really notice now, but stuff like he had to build roofs for all of his sets because he had so many low angle shots of Kane where it's kind of making him look very imposing and big. He needed a roof on top of the set so that he could do that shot and not have it be right looking up at a stage. But that wasn't something that other people did. He had a lot of deep focus shots. This is some real nerd nonsense where everyone in the frame or everything in the frame is in focus at the same time because he was like in real life. That's how like if you're looking at multiple people, they're both in focus. So that wasn't really something people did at the time. They would just focus on one thing in the scene and he focused on everything. So there's a lot of filmmaking techniques at play here that were groundbreaking and revolutionary for their time. But just like you said, the movie has such an incredible understanding of visual language. I love the shots. There's one early on when it's the scene where his parents like give him away to the bank, basically, (laughs) And when they're sitting down signing the papers in the background through the window, you can see little Charlie Kane playing with like a snowman or something. And it's, it's just an amazing shot because it's keeping you grounded in, right? These adults are making this very unemotional, like apathetic sort of decision to give up the care of their child. And we can see the child just having a wonderful childhood day outside moments before he's about to become, you know, moments before this kind of terrible event is going to happen to him that he's taken away and he's left with this grumpy old guy who he has to live with for a while. And there's other shots, too, but I, I agree. The cinematography is so amazing in this film, and it contributes to why this movie is so good and so enjoyable to watch in my opinion.
0: Well yeah, I think that you definitely get a feeling I mean if you're into that kind of thing, I got a feeling of like of watching movie history that this <laughs> this film does have so much has had so much of an impact on how movies are made and how they're you know literally how they're made and shot and stuff like that. Um, that I, I, I really get a kick out of, but, uh, it's, your mileage may vary. It, it, it depends on how much you, how much appreciation you have for that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think that that's a good segue, unless you have anything else to say about the cinematography. I think that's a good segue to talk about the man himself, Big Chuck, as he's called in this movie. Um, no one, Big no Chuck. No one calls him that. I call him that. I think that I, I, Big Chuck is a great character, and I my interpretation of it. And of course, this movie is all about interpretation. Well, it's about a lot of stuff. It's very thematically rich. I think, um, but one of the things it's about is about your interpretation of of Big Chuck. And my, especially as it relates to Rosebud. Uh, that's another thing that I really like. I think that's a really good framing device, is the search for Rosebud, the search for the key to Charles Foster Kane and the eventual reveal of of what Rosebud is, which I do have a few problems with that I'm sure we'll end up talking about. Um, But I think that the reason Rosebud looms so large in his mind at the end of his life is because he associates it with that day when control was taken from him for, for his life, and he spent the rest of his life trying to wrest back that control. Uh, it's it's kind of armchair psychology, but this traumatic event for him left him with a deep sense of not being in control of his own destiny, and from that he learned that control was like the most important thing, that you had to control, you had to direct people in order to get them to do what you want uh, and to be what you want them to be. Like he, it wasn't necessarily malicious. It was just that he had no idea how else to, because he was taught at such a young age that love and control are so closely intertwined or to him, because he thought that his parents loved him and they had this control over him that they moved in such a unpleasant direction, at least for him, that he took that into the rest of his adult life. That if you could just do things to people and get them to behave a certain way, then transactionally they would give you something in return. Um, it's very tragic, it's very Shakespearean, and it's very good. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was intellectually stimulating. It made me think about the ways that people need control and the ways that when left unchecked, those desires lead to their destruction. Yeah, I I don't like this is the thing that I don't like it's not like Oppenheimer where I like I, I'm just so enamored with it, that I just want to spend hours thinking about it and talking about it and trying to figure out what it means. And it's hard for me to explain like what I think is missing. Maybe I think that it's just too simple that it's just like, Oh, well, the here's what it is. And so then I'm like, yeah, cool. Great. I like that. I think that's a great idea. I think that's really well done. I think that's really well communicated, but then there's not really much else for me to do with it. Yeah, I think that might that, that might be a bit of what I feel like is missing from this movie, and I want to be clear that it's it's not like enough for me to give this a bad grade or anything. Like I think this is a really good movie that has definitely earned its place in cinema history. It's just there's some kind of secret sauce or X factor that keeps me from being among its most vociferous lauders. Well, speaking of
1: vociferous lauders, I'm about to vociferously laud this movie a bit. Because, yeah, the, the reason why this movie was kept in my mind ever since I watched it, and I think watching it even more impressed this upon me, I think Charles Foster Kane is one of the most interesting people in movies. And the fact that they chose to frame the character study exclusively through people outside of him is what I find so interesting about this film that we're constantly given glimpses into who he might be. But I don't think the movie ever goes so far as to say unequivocally, this is who he is. And I did read one review that was kind of saying something similar to you, Elliot, where they said, They felt like it should have ended before the Rosebud reveal because the Rosebud reveal does kind of feel like a tiny little bow that it was like, oh, he lost his childhood. He spent his whole life trying to find his childhood. But I think the Rosebud reveal is more so that like people don't have to theorize forever about what Rosebud is, because if they didn't show you, I don't think anyone could ever be able to guess what it is, which won't be a horrible thing. But I think what the journalists are saying right before that scene, one of them says that he's like, I never found out what Rosebud was, but I don't think I would have, like, I don't think it would have put together the puzzle. It would have been one more piece to the puzzle, but it wouldn't have been the only piece I was missing. And I think what's fascinating about this movie and what keeps me coming back to it is that I don't think it's as simple as just, he lost his childhood, so he was kind of a bummer. Like I think there's so many other things going into what he did and the kind of person he was. And because the movie leaves so much of that up to your own interpretation of scenes and actions that he takes, I think it's a really fascinating movie to watch. That just every scene is some new reveal of something that Charles Foster King does And just another tiny piece to a very large, very incomplete puzzle of who he really was as a human being, which I I just think is fascinating because I think humans are way too complex to ever be like as simply defined as we think they can be. I think it's the classic like we know how complex we are. But then we kind of assume everyone else in the world is simplistic enough that we can just easily grasp their whole deal. And I think Citizen Kane is a movie unequivocally saying that's not true. And it's never going to be true, even for people in incredibly large places of power and positions of prestige and fame. That and I think that's part of the reason why I'm going on for a while here, but I I think that's part of the reason why we have that first. After the opening where Charles Foster Kane dies, there's like a little news montage that does like a cute little summary of his life, just kind of the bullet points of what he did. And I think the disparity between our understanding of him from the bullet points and our understanding of him after seeing the entire movie and seeing kind of the nitty gritty of what was actually happening when these things made headlines Forms of like just this beautiful tapestry of the complexity of a human life while also stating this is not everything there was. Like there's still unanswered questions, there's still pieces we're missing. And that's because you could never hope to capture all of this stuff into a movie or into anything because people are way too complex for that. And I I just think that's amazing. And I think Charles Foster Kane is an amazing like example of that an amazing study and i think the, the last thing i'll say is i think on a technical level and you already kind of said this how in a lot of scenes kane is at a distance i think especially in the like later scenes in the mansion I, they're just in these huge rooms and Kane is talking from like across the room and the sound design's amazing because he sounds like he's like 200 feet away from you or something ridiculous like that. And I think it's amazing how much the movie puts the character it's named after at such a huge remove from us, the audience, that it's a visual representation of how far away we are no matter how close we get no matter how personal we get in terms of people telling stories we're still at too much of a remove to ever really get a firm grasp on who he is or at least a full grasp
0: we could probably get a firm grasp <laughs> see like I, I I definitely get all that and i'm I'm sympathetic to it but I think it might just be down to like personal preference here that I just prefer to be more intimately acquainted with characters. Like I found Cain to be really intellectually interesting, but I didn't find myself feeling really a lot of sympathy for him. Mm. I felt like I, I didn't know him well enough as a person to feel anything other than you're kind of bog standard like, well, it's unfortunate that this person is suffering because I have basic human empathy, um, if that makes any sense. And I would say that I I would probably agree with the re- that reviewer that I would have preferred if they had just never, if they had ended it before the Rosebud reveal and then gone all in on the idea that it's just... There's not going to be a single key to this man that's going to make you understand. Although I would still have a bit of an issue with that because I would say, like, I don't care. (laughs) Like, I, I already knew that. I already understand that people are complex and that there's no one thing that's going to solve every facet of their personality. So I'm like... Yeah. Okay. Totally. I'm on board with that. But so, yeah. Yeah. And it's not like I don't say that disparagingly because again I think that this is all really well done, and I guess it's just a bit too self contained that yeah. I I don't feel I don't then like I said with Oppenheimer that and I keep on bringing Oppenheimer up just because that's the most recent example of this but. Like, I don't want to leave that at the theater. And, like, I don't want to leave No Country for Old Men in the DVD player. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, on the TV, they're movies that I keep, I want to keep on thinking about because I feel like they have some sort of application for me. Like, they're not just bound to their their disc or the screen. I guess I feel like Citizen Kane not fully not a whole lot more but is just a bit more narrow a bit more a bit more entertainment than those yeah. movies and some other movies that I could name and and again like I want to be really clear just so my eventual rating doesn't make people go like this guy's completely schizophrenic <laughs> um that's th- that we're talking about very fine degrees here like citizen kane is in my mind removed from like the entertainment of john wick or something like uh citizen kane is a more entertaining (laughs) or, or at least it is to me um and b has a lot more going on under the hood than those movies i just think that when I, th- it's like when we were talking about the Batman, that when I think about like the true greats, the true masterpieces the of storytelling that I carry with me, like you've been carrying Citizen Kane with you, they're movies that are just that little bit further in the areas that I've been talking about that makes them more impactful to me.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think think the reason why Citizen Kane has experienced as much praise as it's gotten is because, and, you know, I was thinking of this as you were saying this, that I find it, I guess I don't find it applicable to myself, but I find it such an incredibly moving portrayal of the, like, tiny pieces of a human life that make up, like, living. Um, I think one of the most famous scenes in the movie in terms of kind of communicating this idea is when the reporter goes to talk to Leland and I think it's Leland and Leland's like, and he asks him about Rosebud and he's like, well, it had to be important. Right. And Leland's like, like, you don't know that it could be the tiniest thing. And he tells this story of seeing a woman get on a, a ferry as he's like exiting a ferry.
0: That's
1: Bernstein, not Leland. It's Bernstein? Dang it. I had a 50-50. You're right. it, It was Bernstein. It's in an office, not in the thingy. Okay, but he says that he saw this woman, and then he says how not a month has gone by since that moment that he didn't think about this woman. And it's just this incredibly moving idea of the tiniest things can mean so much to us. And there's like no really good way to communicate to another person in words like why it mattered that much. Which I th- I think is really amazing and kind of segues to I think the second thing that I would love to praise about this movie, which is I think the script is fantastic. And I don't want to get into who should be attributed with praise for the script, Herman Mankiewicz or Orson Welles. They both wrote parts of the movie. We're going to assume it's a 50-50 split or close enough that we can just say, good job to both of them. But I love this script. I think there's so many lines in here that are just so very clever, but kind of speak to this kind of deep-seated scent, like awareness of the hollowness of so many of the pursuits of so many of these characters. The journalist is talking to so many people who have been very rich, very successful, and they're all kind of in the tail end of their own lives. And a lot of the stuff they say to him just resonates with this sense of like, dang, I I did not get it until I got too old to like really make it worth it, these things that I have now realized. I think Kane says at one point, and I think it's a pretty good line, I could have been a pretty good person if I hadn't been rich, that he's like, because he got kind of this silver spoon, he never had to be a good human being because he could just smooth everything over in money. Someone else says it's easy to make money if all you care about is making money. Just this idea that, If you don't care about being a scumbag, it's fairly easy to uh, accrue large amounts of wealth in the world, which I can't speak to being true or not, because I don't feel like I have enough money or know enough people who have made a lot of money to say that. But I just think all of these quotes are kind of on the same idea of the decaying power of being rich. And just what that does to a human soul to have everything and not have the one thing that would actually, like, make you feel okay. But the script has other lines, but those were the two that really stood out to me. And I, I love the script. It's not as, like, witty as Casablanca, but I think it's got a bit more kind of thematic depth in some of the lines than Casablanca.
0: Uh I think I would have to disagree. I actually found those lines a bit on the nose, uh, especially in light of what we talked about with the movie's ability to communicate ideas visually. And just from later on, the conversations that he has where they're not talking directly about like, oh, this is what is happening with me. This is the thing that led to me being this way. Because, I mean, he is purportedly saying there, this is the key to me is wealth. Um, and I think that the movie does a very good job of showing that indirectly through or shots and stuff, stuff alike that it doesn't really need those. Um, so I felt like the script was at its best when it was in conversation between two people and it was sort of, living out those ideas rather than just talking about them. Because when they were just talking about them, I was like, I don't think I really need this. It wasn't a huge thing, but it was enough to make me notice. You're so stupid. What a, what a moron. Gosh. That seems like an overreaction.
1: I need to get an. new what's the,
0: what's the key to your anger issues? What made you this way? Someone stole my sled when I was a kid. No! That's not even true. We own all the sleds that we, we still have all the sleds that we have ever owned. That's funny. Um. All right. Fair
1: enough. I guess, you know, you're allowed to have your opinion, I suppose. Um, I think, man, there's so many other things that I think this movie does really well. I I guess I would like to touch on here before we can continue talking about some of the characters and stuff but just on every technical level this movie is so good the makeup is really amazing through like through the years them making characters look older it i think it holds up pretty well it looks good it's also black and white so maybe it was easier but i think like the old person makeup on orson wells and honestly even the young person makeup looks really good for orson wells um all the other characters the lighting Again, I think this can be attributed to Orson Welles shooting it, not having any idea how a movie is supposed to look because so many scenes have like no lighting or at least not lighting where any other movie would have lighting. There's so many scenes where Citizen Kane, where Kane is like sitting in the dark or other characters who are talking are sitting in the dark where characters are not lit And it makes for a very visually striking film. And especially in times when people start talking in darkness and then there's a moment where they step into the light that it usually is kind of signaling a turn in the conversation. It's just so, it's so amazing. It looks, it doesn't just not look like anything from the 40s. It doesn't look like a lot of things that are shot like today. I still feel like the movie has a very unique technical presence that I can't think of a huge number of movies that have either emulated it or chosen to kind of try and follow in its footsteps. And so I, that's just another thing that makes me really enjoy the movie. That's not going to get a ton of mileage for other people. But for me, I'm just sitting there like, dang, this was lit. Like someone was blind while lighting it,
0: but it, it makes it interesting. Well, I I don't know about that. I definitely think that its use of shadows is pretty creative. Um, What is is a shadow but the absence of light? just going to ignore that. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of when Kane and Susan first have, like, a fight about... Or maybe it's the second time. They have a fight about um, her singing, and he's insisting... To save face, he's insisting that she go on with it because he he won't be made a fool of. And that's, you know, that's good. I said, you know. <laughs> that's good character work, good character development. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about appreciate about this movie is that it never feels like they're not developing Kane's character. Mm. Like everything in this is contributing to that arc for him. Um, but anyway, when they're having that conversation and he stands up and he completely overshadows her, literally, like she's sitting in his shadow and you can only see her eyes. I think that's a really good trick of lighting. Um, that's a good example of what you're talking about. Uh, and on the subject, let's talk about the side characters because I I think they're all good And again, this just gets back to my own personal preference when it comes to characters and fleshing characters out, that the fact that they all exist in the context of of Kane makes sense for the story that it's telling, but it also... Just just limits them a little bit, and and again, we're talking about very fine degrees here. That it just limits them a little bit, where I'm like, where it just makes it that little bit harder for me to get invested in them compared to other enduring cinematic classics. That I I'm I'm just like, it's like what we talked about with Casablanca as it relates to. The woman character whose name I've completely forgotten somehow. Um, Ingrid Bergman's character, yeah, isn't it like Elsa or something like that? Oh, so you don't know either? I'm pretty sure it's Elsa. Well, Elsa, the the fact that the extent to which she existed only in the context of uh, of Rick, that I was that it just made it that much harder for me to get invested in them. And, I mean, we could talk about, like, the movie doesn't really care about getting you invested in them because it wants to get you invested in Citizen Kane. And, like I said already, that it achieves that. It definitely achieves that. And it's a really good, satisfying achievement. It just lacks something. It just lacks a little bit of the, the extra sauce, the extra X-Factor or special sauce, because they ex- they're so they're so much functional characters that they serve their purpose to get you a bit more of an insight into kane and then they're kind of discarded and it makes them feel kind of inconsequential which i don't think even in the context of what they're doing i don't think is the best decision because well th- this is see these are the internal debates that i have with myself i'm constantly like Questioning my own opinions because, like, it makes them feel inconsequential to Kane. And maybe that's the point that he, that these people are inconsequential to him, even though he's trying to make them consequential, but he just can't get to that point. So I I don't know. Nathan, you say something. I'm completely lost. I have no idea how I feel. Well, I think I would just say
1: that I agree. The side characters are very much just there for writes the development of charles foster kane and them telling their part in the story i don't think that's an issue because and i think i do just fall on one of the two sides that you were kind of debating in your head like a psychopath there um that they are just there to help us get more of an idea on who charles foster kane is and so I don't really have an issue that they're all kind of just serving the plot because I I just can't imagine what it would look like for them to serve the plot and then have their own arc or their own kind of character outside of Kane. I don't know what that would look like I don't know what that would mean. I don't know what that would look like and I don't think and I feel fairly strongly on this, I don't think it would be a better movie. I don't think it would be improved. By any of the side characters having more of a presence or having more of a character outside of Kane. So it's not an issue for me. I think they're all well done. They're all well acted. They all serve their function in the story very well. And I don't think any of them tell a story that I'm like, that I think is pointless or that I find boring. I I like how there's kind of a progression of closeness that we start with a guy who doesn't really have any idea who he is. Who Kane is, and then move through friends until we get to the second ex-wife to get kind of closer to Kane, and we get more of an understanding on certain moments. But yeah, I I guess I like the side characters. I think they're important to the movie, and I think they're good at what they're supposed to, their function in the film is.
0: Well, let's just call it a wash. Um... <laughs> it's a wash. Uh, let's. You mentioned it, so let's talk about the performances in this movie. Obviously, the headline is Orson Welles, and I think that he deserves every bit of credit that he's gotten for his performance here. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, if I sound weird, it's because I have a sore throat. Just so you know. Um, yeah, I. There's really not much for me to say other than he's great. Uh, he he has the dimensions. Uh, To different, he understands the different dimensions of Kane and he plays them all well. Um, He does a really good job of portraying a frustrated person, uh, somebody who's frustrated with the world around them and their inability to affect it in the ways that they want to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, everyone else does a really good job. I have to say, I wasn't really thrilled with the performance of the woman who played Susan, just because there were times where her face didn't really match her voice. Like, she was verbally emoting, but not really facially emoting, especially in the first scene when the reporter comes to her and she's, she's like, screaming at him to get out, but she's, like, completely impassive in her expression. I was like, dude, why? you would be a great voice actor, but you, you gotta... You gotta crease that brow or something. Just give me something else than, than verbal emoting. I thought that was weird. Uh,
1: I guess I didn't notice that. I obviously I I can't say any more about how good Orson Welles is. I think the only person who I really like is I like the guy who plays Leland. I believe it's Joseph Cotton, but I could be wrong on that just cause I think he brings a really great sense to Leland when he's older that he, that he brings a really good contrast, I think to the scenes with Leland when he's younger and he's kind of happy to go along with Kane to the scenes where he's much older, he's in a wheelchair. He looks terrible. He looks like he's on the verge of death and he's telling the reporter about kind of all these regrets and these things that he feels I, I really liked that. I thought it was a very strong performance in a supporting sort of role.
0: Sure, uh, I, I can't say that he was—he stood out partic- as particularly special to me. But um, he was definitely good. All of them, all of the performances uh, were good. I don't—I don't have a whole lot else to talk about um, other than set design, which I, I'm not just. Bringing this up so I can sound like a pretentious movie nerd who likes to talk about things other than performances. But I honestly really appreciated the sets. Um, I I love a good set. Uh, I I love a, a, a movie that doesn't film with green screen. Obviously, that wasn't an option for these guys. But like, I love shooting on location. I love shooting in sets. And Xanadu was a fantastic set. It really communicated. And I'm sure that some of this was just like paintings or something but it really communicated this this very hollow scale that Kane had ensconced mm. himself in that it was really big but also really empty except for the places where it was really crowded with stuff that he had acquired trying to make himself happy but that also Is great set work because it's all just like crowded in these big rooms of unopened stuff and statues that he doesn't even care about and that he probably didn't have any legal right to buy. Um, uh, That he just that are just doing nothing for him emotionally. Um, Yeah. Yeah, the great job, set designers.
1: Yeah, the set design's amazing. Everything about this movie is amazing. Like, every technical aspect of this movie just goes crazy. And part of it is, I'm pretty sure, Orson Welles pretty much brought in all of his own, like, makeup, set design. I think a lot of those people were from... He was a theater actor and a theater director for, like, a couple... Like, four or five years before he was invited to come to Hollywood and make a movie... And I believe he brought most of those people over to do the sets and costumes and makeup and stuff like that with him. Because at the beginning of the movie, when it says a Mercury, a Mercury production, I'm pretty sure Mercury was the like theater group that he was associated with. Elliot might be verifying this information now. I, I was trying, but I could not. That's okay. Just trust, trust me. I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a movie fan. (laughs) Um, I don't, I don't really have much else to say. I feel like I've said kind of my piece on every sort of piece of this movie. I just really like it. And I need people to stop saying it's overrated. It's not overrated.
0: (laughs) It hurts my feelings when they say it. Well, no one cares um let's get into ratings then i'll go first uh i think this movie is just a little bit overrated oh my goodness (laughs) no i i like this movie um i've talked a lot about the problems that i have with it mostly as a function of sometimes we just kind of fall into roles where one of us will be playing the defender and the other the attacker um and it's it's mostly because I just don't have anything to add to Na- what Nathan has been saying. I agree with him on most everything that I haven't explicitly said that I uh, disagree with him on. I agree with him. This is definitely a fantastic movie. Uh, it's really important to movie history, um, which I appreciate. It's got great performances. The technical aspects are all immaculate. It's a really good character study that I like a lot and that I enjoyed watching. It's just. You know, it's just got, it's just missing that, the the X Factor. Just a little, a few more da- daubs of the secret sauce that it needs to get into the true masterworks for me. But it is, it's, I mean, it's in the masterworks. It's just not in, like tier three of the masterworks or whatever. I mean, I'm rambling. I've, I've said my piece. Uh, I'm going to give it an a minus now. It's not in the same category as Casablanca for me of like the Hollywood legends, but it's, it's just a, it's just a little step below it.
1: Yeah. I I think I've pretty much said everything I want to. And you know, if you need more praise of, of Citizen Kane, just look up the last 80 some years of critical discourse that have happened to this movie. It's been universally praised. And I think it's very, very deserving of that praise. I was so happy that I enjoyed it as much as I thought I would on rewatch. Uh, I'm going to give it like a 9.2 out of 10. This is a, a great, great,
0: great movie. All right, well, let's talk about some other great, great, great movies, or at least movies that we think are great enough to warrant a a, a recommendation off of Citizen Kane. Uh, My recommendation, i struggled with this one a lot just because, like I said to Nathan beforehand, uh, this is one of those movies where I feel like there's a perfect recommendation out there, but I just can't figure out how to call it to mind, Um, and it's possible that it's just because this movie is such is so entrenched in culture that I just think that it's more prevalent than it actually is. But I ended up going with a movie about a rise and fall that I've talked about already that is still in theaters, and that's Oppenheimer. Um, I'm not going to gush about it any more than I already have in our review. So I'm just going to say if you like Citizen Kane for the rise and fall aspect, for the character study aspect of it... Go see Oppenheimer. Make sure you see it in theaters. Don't miss out. Don't don't succumb to FOMO. Or no, do succumb to FOMO. Go <laughs> see it in theaters to make sure that you don't miss out. And uh, yeah, I don't need to say anything more about Oppenheimer that I haven't already said. Yep, I feel we've said a lot about Oppenheimer. You should go
1: and see it. Support cinema. Support support real cinema. We'll say that. Um. My recommendation doesn't have a lot to do with Citizen Kane, the movie, but has more to do with Orson Welles, the person he made Citizen Kane. And then none of his other movies were really ever able to live up in terms of the critical opinion of them to his first one, as well as he was kind of railroaded out of Hollywood for uh, making this movie. William Randolph Hearst, who this movie is not paid, it's not making fun of him. It's just clearly about him. And he's an insecure human being. So he ran a smear campaign against Orson Welles that was somewhat successful. But my recommendation is Orson Welles's very, very late. It honestly might have been his last movie ever that he made, which is the documentary F for Fake, which is a documentary kind of about art forgery the art of art forgery but on a deeper level it's really just about how Orson Welles loved to tell stories and was constantly fascinated by like what makes art art if all art is kind of a lie or at least all of the art that he made was kind of fundamentally a lie in the sense that it was being manufactured but it was supposed to look like it was real It's a ton of fun because a lot of it is just Orson Welles telling like very funny, interesting stories, as well as the art forgery and the kind of forgery pieces that he talks about are very interesting stories. He talks about like the most famous art forger whose art forgeries ended up being worth a lot because he was famous for making them. So it was like it's this weird like, where does the line between art and fake art go if the fake art is valued as much as the real art? Um, And then he tells a story about some guy who uh, impersonates uh, Howard Hughes, which is, again, just kind of an interesting thing. But it's a ton of fun. It's only like an hour and 20 minutes long, but it is just a hoot and a half. Orson Welles looks like a dark wizard the entire time because he's wearing this big giant trench coat and he weighed like 350 pounds his entire life. But it's a lot of fun. I think Orson Welles should get more attention for the other things he did besides Citizen Kane. So this is me
0: calling attention to one of those things. Lovely, <clears throat> lovely stuff. Um, I haven't seen that, so... I can't speak to its quality. uh, What I can speak to is that life is hard and full of disappointments, uh, as Nathan has discovered as he's flashing his armpit sweat to the camera for reasons unknown. I was but, just uh, stretching. Okay, sure. It's really, sure. It's really warm. I don't know if you noticed the temperature outside. <laughs> fine for me i'm in a, a, a climate controlled building uh, magellan's at the movies hq is has got very good air conditioning yeah well i'm trying to I, i'm trying to save money
1: on electricity so we're not using a lot of ac over here <laughs> um you're
0: not a fan or something
1: yeah i don't know i don't own a fan anyway uh you know thanks for listening we successfully Got this episode out on Friday, assuming I don't get like struck dead or something as soon as we stop recording <laughs> so I can edit this episode and get it out. But um, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another incredible episode. You know, life is hard and full of disappointments, but Magellan's at the movies is easy to listen to and full of awesome episodes. <laughs> I'm trying to rebrand your thing into a tagline, Elliot. Okay.